Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with Colin Askey, director of the new documentary Love in the Time of Fentanyl, as well as the film subjects Ronnie Grigg, Dana McInnes, and Norma Valancourt. That's all coming up on Endeavors. forms for I guess 12 years now February 2010 was when I first went on the air at CJSF and I've interviewed a lot of people you know it started off as an art show you know I just sort of wanted to you know try to be like a late night show and have couple of guests and a music guest um, went from a half hour to an hour and it's been morphing ever since then especially a lot over the last six months or so um, I've been really into these longer form feature in-depth interviews and you know I don't I don't shy away from heavy topics. I don't necessarily seek them out. I wouldn't call myself a journalist by any stretch of the imagination, but I have learned how to approach certain subjects or certain people. Um, some interviews go well, others don't. Some are lighthearted, some are a little more deep and you know make make you think I remember there was one interview I think at a sometime in, in 2020 with Magda Apanovich uh, and I remember after the interview ended we both we stopped recording but we continued chatting for another 15 minutes because we, we just both felt that it was really a great connection I mean we just both of us just said everything we wanted to say and it was a great connection between you know host and, and guest and um you know i got the same with 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 jill hennessy both times i've talked to her so it it does happen occasionally where where you do feel just really really good about an interview but I'm not sure there has been another time where after the interview was done, after we stopped recording and wrapped things up, that I had to get up, just leave my computer, leave my space, just go outside and, and wander around for an hour because just 
the the heaviness and the emotion that was present in that interview hit me like a ton of bricks and that definitely happened with with the with, with this interview um it's about a documentary called Love in the Time of Fentanyl. It, the documentary itself, very, very good, but not the easiest watch, as you can probably imagine. Um, you know, fentanyl is, especially in BC, has been at the center of the opioid crisis for the last five years or so. Um, and although this documentary looks at, you know, the, the, the support workers and volunteers who are working at, you know, safe, safe in, injection sites in, in the downtown east side and sort of other, other ways to, to combat the addiction, uh, it's still not... It, it it's just tough to to see everything that goes on not only from people shooting up but just just to to run um an operation like that and you know i i lived in vancouver for many years and i never sort of lived right in the downtown east side but i you know i knew a lot of people who who lived and worked in the area and and you know, I was there during Occupy and other sorts of protests. So I've seen both the, the, the positive and negatives of political and, and municipal policy. And, but I was very fortunate to speak with uh, Colin Askey, who is the director of Love in the Time of Fentanyl. Uh, and he was uh, showing the film. They were in, uh, I believe, Edmonton uh, when I talked to him because they were kind of taking the films to a few different cities. And I say they because he and we were also joined by uh, some of the people featured um, in the film, featured as as both both the workers and you know users themselves. Norma Valancourt, Dana McInnes, and uh, Ronnie Greg, who's known and, and you'll hear it in the film and in the interview uh, as as narcan jesus and he's been a long time uh worker in in the area and he's one of the rock stars in um being being a support being a lifeline and uh, into helping people uh work their way through uh substance use and addiction so um it's an emotional interview it's a long interview uh there are some heavy topics you know we talk about substance use we talk about addiction we talk about homelessness uh, we talk about police brutality uh, political policy you know, all 
talk about all kinds of drugs. So just throwing that out there that if you are someone who has dealt with these issues in the past, um, it may be triggering for you. Uh, if you're someone that hasn't, uh, strap in because it's going to be a good one. This is my conversation with Colin Askey, Norma Valancourt, Dana McKinnis. I am here joined by filmmaker Colin Askey and some of the subjects of his documentary, Love in the Time of Fentanyl. I've got Norma Valancourt, Ronnie Grigg, and Dana McPhee. Hello to everybody. Hello. Good to see you. Uh, last name is McKinnis. Oh, McKinnis. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. The uh, mayor made the same mistake. <laughs> that, I, think that, I think that's why I said it, because I got it, I got it from the film. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, Colin, I guess I'll start with you. Um, you know, everyone who sort of lives in Vancouver in the nor- lower mainland is aware of the uh, op- opioid crisis. How did you come to want to capture this all on camera? So, yeah, so I had worked in the downtown neighborhood for many years, and uh, it's a community that I cared deeply about. And um, I'd moved to New York in 2016, and that's kind of when the, the records of overdose deaths were just flying off the charts. And so, you know, it was really... Uh, uh, hard to watch from a distance to see what the community was going through and a lot of you know friends that were still working there losing so many loved ones and and also people you know that we we knew were passing away uh, at uh, rates you know that were just unbelievable and so I guess I just I really wanted to shine a light on what was happening the, the scale of the crisis but also I felt like uh, it wasn't really being talked about the 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 response from the community, which was uh, just uh, incredible and brave and and courageous, and uh, and it was more kind of uh, about the you know the paramedics that were also obviously going through uh, you know being extraordinary at their response. But I wanted to focus on the community members themselves, and and so I just you know as soon as I had a chance, I got there and I was doing you know a few different films and was talking to Ronnie who was working at ops and, and uh, then found out that kind of Sarah was working there as well. And I'd known Norma for years as well. So it was like, wow, this is, you know, a lot of familiar faces that I knew would, uh, I guess, you know, knew that I'd worked in the community for a long time and would, would trust me and kind of, you know, I started just with, with uh, Ronnie and knew pretty quick that, uh, this, I guess, you know, was a bigger story that could had a chance to be a feature. And, and so, um, yeah, just, it just started following it. And, uh, I knew having worked in these spaces that there's a lot of magic that happens. It's not just about saving lives. It's, uh, about relationships and, uh, it's about a family in there that does amazing things and, you know, welcomes a, a group of people that aren't, uh, really welcome in a lot of places in society. And so, uh, you know, the, and people were really open and that really what's, I think makes the movie work is that people were 
really taking big risks to say, hey, this is what's going on and, and, and this is who we are and uh, we, need, we need help down here. And we need, the, I think, we need the world to kind of take a look at this issue from a di in a different way and, uh, and some changes that need to be made. For, for the three of you, for Norma, Ronnie, and Dana, was it easy for you to continue doing what you're doing, but now there's a camera in front of you? How, how did that, if at all, alter your day-to-day your -day lives? I can talk about that. Um, Colin was really good when he came to us and said, I'd like to film some scenes of your workday or what you're doing. And he was really respectful. Uh, Eric, the guy that was doing uh, helping, it's Eric? Yeah. Uh, was helping. He was really good as well. So Colin would pick areas that he wanted to focus on. And he would we would patiently set it up and just run a scene. I don't feel it interfered with our workday at all. And uh, a lot of people just enjoyed helping Colin. It was kind of fun to see how a documentary is made or, uh, you know, to, to be on camera even. Uh, it's, a little, it's always a little, you've got nerves, you've got a, a couple of butterflies when the, when the camera's rolling, but uh, I didn't feel it was a, an interference at all with what we did. Yeah, and I, I know a lot of you uh, helped out in different ways. Like, I think, Norma, I saw you in the credits as uh, production and camera assistant. Um, what was it like for you to kind of be in, be in, not just be in front of the camera, but be involved in, in that regard as well? Um, well, I was like that being you know, shy, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm not used to speaking or doing anything in front of cameras and I, even speaking in front of audiences. Like, I, I'm so shy and I'm nervous. But, you know, I say a prayer to my, I pray, I pray, and I believe prayers are answered. And it makes me um, believe that this is not for a reason. I got to do this because my creators, you know, is, is telling me in my heart that it, it's important for the world to know about the opioid crisis down in, in, in the whole world, actually, yeah. And my shyness is actually going away now, and I'm getting pretty confident about talking in front of cameras and in front of people. Uh, and Ronnie, for you, I mean, you you kind of started out as you know, at least in the beginning of the film, as as the the the, the centerpiece for you, what is what is the reaction been to this film? Um, well, I mean, for for me, I, you know, I've been involved in in supervised consumption sites since two thousand and nine, and it's and most of that time is like the the word that comes forward is obscurity or invisibilization right and uh and there's something that's right about that right like just to do your work and respond without credit or without you know people patting you on the back or whatever because it's just right to do but there's also something dangerous about that you know when uh when you're invisibilized so for me the um the opportunity you know having done it for a long time and then to have a light shone on it is is really um, really important because, um, you know, like Dana and Norma and the others, they deserve it, right? They deserve to uh, be witnessed. 
and um, and and it when when in in that witnessing empathy grows right and uh, support grows and all of that stuff we need it right because we've been we've been slugging it out for years right and we need people to hear um, to hear these these stories right and and to like when we say we need something we need people to respond. And visually seeing it and witnessing just just makes that opportunity so much, so much more real, you know. I think one of the things that the the films talks about is is the effects and and the facts of fentanyl. And I think there's still a lot of misconceptions about the opioid crisis and you know how how potent um, this drug is. How how would you say or how would you describe the the dangers of fentanyl compared to you know some of the earlier drugs that were we were seeing on the streets in 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 the eighties and nineties? I, I I can start on that one. Um, in the eighties and nineties, uh, we we were always hearing about crack co- cocaine, and it was killing people in Canada and in America, and I was not in Vancouver during those times, but I, I talked to people about it and they definitely were affected. The downtown east side was definitely affected by that. Heroin has been in the downtown east side for decades. Um, people died, but not at anywhere near the numbers. They started to die when fentanyl came to town. Um, fentanyl, they, they say that fentanyl is 100, is it 100 times stronger than heroin, Ronnie? Um, I believe I believe so. Is that is that what it is, Colin? No, it's 50, right? Morphine. Yeah, it's 50. 100 times stronger than morphine, 50 yeah, times stronger. Yeah, yeah. okay. So it, it's interesting. Um, uh, it's stronger, and it also means it kills a lot more people as well. So um, fentanyl comes to town. And we have this huge spike in deaths. And uh, it's taken us a while to educate people about how to do that. If, if you're addicted and you have this overwhelming need to use, we've shown people how to do that as safely as possible and not die. But the question was, how, is, how has it changed versus things in the past? Um, it's, it's even, it, it's it, much more, many more people have died and now that there's benzodiazepines mixed with the fentanyl, even more people are dying because a benzodiazepine makes it very, very difficult to wake up. We have trouble rousing people out of their, uh, their eyes are closed, there's looks like they're sleeping and it's, it's easy to die or be assaulted that way. So, I would say that uh, how things have changed, um, more people are dying and uh, in a way it's costing us more money to take care of this problem. You know, speaking of of dying, uh, there are, Colin, I think uh, a a few times where we see either people ODing or or the effects of people ODing on camera, um, which I think for some viewers can be jarring um, but but for some a reality for you as a director, 
the the decision to to actually show that on camera and say like I'm I'm gonna show this but I, but I'm not gonna show this. What what goes into that decision making? Yeah, I mean that's that, I think I was talking a bit about Ronnie about that in the beginning and like the importance of being able to capture that and not really knowing how to do that respectfully. And uh, I think for me it was probably the worst you know feeling I've ever had as a filmmaker uh showing that um what helped was like in the first one we hear that um, that's my voice trying that's why the camera work is so, so terrible but it's like uh you know i felt like i wasn't just a bystander and a, a little bit you know i was at least on the phone to 911 and trying to obviously not you know make sure that i never showed the face of the person that was odine but I think, you know, at the end of the day, we have to show the work that's being done and, and how lives are being saved and the scale of it. So uh, there was no question to me that it needed to be shown. The, the question was always how to how to do it as respectfully as possible. And uh, and yeah, that there was definitely, I think, you know, those times that were, I was able to do that or I you know knew the person that was Odin and we were able to and especially inside ops, you know, we were able to communicate with that person and make sure that they knew what was happening after and it was okay. And uh, so, yeah, it was just, you know, really, I guess, uh, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, I can't express how tough that was to, to do uh, and feel like it was done right. But uh, I hope, you know, and I hope it comes across that way. And, uh, and more so it's about, not just about the scale of, you know, what people are going through and how, Fentanyl is, you know, this is a numerous times a day thing. This isn't just, um, you know, I think we see the numbers of people dying and it's like, is this, are these sites or are these services working? And I think like, I, I can't even imagine what the numbers would be if it wasn't for the community's response here. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's extremely difficult, I guess. You know, there there were a couple of times where, where we saw the, the police come in and I do think at least in one scene, they did have the um, insight saves lives jacket, um, but what Ronnie, Norma, Dana, what's the what is the relationship like with the uh, the, the the police or the, the 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 community at large in in terms of 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 these sites and and um, the um, the help the help that it's that it's doing. Right. Um. I think it depends on the site. Um. We are known as a low barrier site, and we've found that uh, some members of the Vancouver Police Department in the past have been, uh, they've interfered with our ability to be low barrier. Um, and there, there are some police members that have been very tough on uh, some of the members that we service. So as a general policy, we're told that it, it's only in the very worst circumstance should we bring police in to deal with uh, uh, something that's happening in our site. Um, it, it might be a little different up at Insight, uh, or there's other uh, safe injection sites in our neighborhood. Um, I personally have a good relationship with our with our police department, but I've never been on the receiving end of violence or discrimination from them. Uh, I try not to get angry 
when they're there and I try to speak to them with respect and that's usually reciprocated. Just to note, it was the paramedics that you were yeah. seeing in the film too. Not, not there was no police in the right that I remember in the film. Yeah. 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 I myself, um, like I, I've done OBs outside, and the police show up, and they just stand there. They don't want, they don't help us. You know, and I think that I think the police departments should be trained to give out naloxone to um, people that are overdosing on the streets in Vancouver. Because um, they just stand there and they, don't, they just watch. They don't ask us, can we help you? Can we do anything for you? And I think it's important that the, the police are, should be trained for this and not you know, discriminating uh, the people that are on drugs and that, and that um, you know, they're dying on the street and you just walk by them, you know, it's sad, but, you know, it's because I believe that the police should be trained. And if I can add, I've, I've had a fair number of encounters with police and advocacy and complaints and, and, and whatever, cooperation, collaboration, whatever you want to call it. And the official um, uh, response from the Vancouver Police Department is that they support harm reduction. They don't do street level um, arrests for possession or, or for small transactions. So that's the official language is that it's supportive. There are massive problems how it plays out on the streets. And, um, um, and if they don't do arrests, they do confiscate a lot um, yeah. regularly. It's witnessed small amounts. Yeah. Um, they, they've interfered with overdoses. They've blocked overdose response from responding. Um, and and there's there have been times where they've been really supportive. Like I've experienced support where they've said, "Listen to Ronnie," you know. And then there have been times um, lately there's been a turnover in people, and they've just you know been hostile and um, and confrontational. Which I mean, we're in a and 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 so having said all that, the the criminal code does not support a public health crisis, right? No. And so um, uh, that, that's the disconnect, right? Cops are going criminal code. I'm saying it's a public health crisis. Good Lord. Like, like everyone, every level of government, everyone in the community wants the public health crisis response, you know? So it's, it's, it's complicated and it's not, not tidy right now. Well, you know, on, on that note, the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of discussions about law enforcement, you know, what they should be involved in. You know, we saw it with George Floyd and, all. you know, them dealing with different kinds of, uh, you know, mental health issues. And they're saying maybe, well, maybe we should get social workers involved for this and, and, and not police. Does, does something like a, a supervised injection site well, fall under that category? Would it would it better be served by, you know, a, 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 a social worker than than a police force? I think so. I I, I totally agree. Uh, there's a lot of mental health problems in our neighborhood, and I, I mean, it, it may be inappropriate for me to say this, but I feel that the closing of the Riverview Mental Health Hospital in Coquitlam. Uh, brought a large number of people from supervised mental health facility 
to the downtown east side. And then those people started self-medicating for their problems and they do not need police. They, a social worker or somebody with a, a background in psychology would be fantastic for us because there's staff and clients that are struggling with things and having a professional there, I think would be fantastic. You know, uh, there, I think there's, there are a lot of, I think, myths and, and misconception about the community, the people who live there, the people who use. Colin, as, as someone who documented this, <laughs> what do you want the public to know about the community in the downtown east side? Well, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's hopefully what's shown in, in this film is that there's, I think the way we viewed, you know, drug use and, and drug users is, uh, it's been ingrained for a long time. And, uh, and there's some deeply entrenched beliefs about this issue. And I think what this film hopefully shows is when you actually walk alongside these folks, a lot of them active drug users, that they're doing more for their community than most of us do on a daily basis, you know, and uh, are, are some of the, the most compassionate, smartest, amazing people I have ever met. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It's, it's absolutely true for me. And uh, I can't, I mean, the downtown east side community is, has been like my, cha changed who I am as a, as a person. And I, I get people's ideas because I've shared those, you know, uh, myself, but um, the reality is, is different for a lot of different people, you know, and so what um, people's experiences in the downtown east side are completely different than a lot of people who know someone that had, you know, the, these sorts of issues and maybe found help through 12 steps absence based programs or recovery. But I think the, the, the problem is when we project those uh, um, services or those uh, values onto different people that whose experiences are completely different. So I hope people just um, see a lot of things in this film that go against what they may have previously thought and open their minds to to get to I mean there's so much education and and years and years of peer review peer-reviewed studies that are available that not only in Vancouver but all around the world these sorts of services have really uh you know been been saving lives and improving uh lives of chronic drug users and so there's lots of options and we need to scale up these services to meet the needs because clearly we're not, you know, and clearly we're in the, the, what we've been doing. And Ronnie was saying this the other day is like has failed miserably and, and we need to accept that and look that in the, in the face. Sorry for stealing your great lines there, Ronnie. <laughs> Thanks for quoting me, friend. <laughs> do, do, do sites like this and, you know, e even the the broader question of of legalization, like you see, is is done in a country like Portugal. It is does that not only help reduce reduce deaths, but does it also help lessen the number of people who are addicted? Uh, I can speak speak to that. So, I, like, I, and another example I'll use is uh, Switzerland, just because uh, I think. It's a large topic in the downtown east side is this push for safe supply and that is providing, you know, clean and injectable opioids or, or drugs in any form 
that is not, uh, you know, tainted and poisoned and people know what they're getting. And, uh, you know, people new to this issue may think that's crazy, but this has been you know, studied for numerous years and, and in a lot of different places around the world. And if you look at Switzerland, that in the 80s, they opened up the world's first safe injection site. And Switzerland is a very conservative country, but they're a very rational, you know, country. And they said, this is working. Let's expand these services and moved on to providing a safe supply to, you know, the drug users there. And drug use has decreased. Overdoses have, there's barely any in that country. And so fentanyl doesn't have a black market to enter there. And so they don't see the catastrophe that we have. Whereas if in Canada, you know, we, we would have done this as people in the community have been trying to stress for years that we need these services. Um, had we moved with the same efficiency, I don't think we would see, you know, fentanyl having such an effect as it has today. And, uh, and it does, because when you treat it as a health issue, I think and it's more accepted from that point of view, um, the more people just, uh, you know, feel a part of society and a part of community. And, and uh, um, I don't know about reducing drug use. I mean, a lot of people use for different reasons, you know, and I think that um, we have to accept that you know, not everyone abstinence isn't isn't for everyone and people um, for whatever reasons, some may want to reduce drug use, some are going to be using for forever for multiple different reasons. And that doesn't mean that they're they should they deserve to die. And that doesn't mean they don't deserve options. And uh, um, we need to, I think, really accept that that because someone uses drugs doesn't mean we need to write them off and, and say that there's nothing for you. you know? You, you talk about mental health, and I think one interesting aspect that was looked at in the film was that th this idea of trauma and how some of the um, users were that that was their that was their reason for um, using was what was trauma. Um, do you should should there be more um, mental health and psychological um services available for those who have gone through especially complex trauma complex psd because could that also help maybe lessen the 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 blow so to speak of of these street drugs i uh respond to that i've, I've spent um um i mean i mean this is this is the question Right, like that like to me i think this is the heart of the matter is how we attend to this i've i've spent a lot of time with people in crisis in psychosis and in hospital waiting rooms and um and you know supporting them in and out of psychiatric facilities and we don't do it well um at this point and uh and that can be a trauma in itself the accessing you know psychiatric services can is is honestly it's 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 a necessary thing but when i've supported people it's a crapshoot you know like is it this going to be effective or is this going to be more traumatizing and so this 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 um trauma informed emphasis is extremely important and doing it in ways that create and and this is what i think is beautiful about about services like that like harm reduction services in general where, where, you know, the, the, you know, some of the language that's used is meeting people where they're at, 
you know, um, or or providing low barrier care, those kinds of things. Those, those are that's some of the terminology. And when people feel safe and accepted, then then their 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 experience of that trauma can be can be looked at. But if they feel um, judged and isolated, which is a lot of a lot of what the experience is in psychiatric facilities, then uh, it gets worse, right? And so um, somehow, uh, and, and and I do think we have we we have the expertise to do that, but um, we don't have facilities, you know, to accommodate, you know, you know the the time and the safety and the teams and and all of the, all of that that dynamic support right at this moment. But I think that's the heart of the matter is is this trauma informed approach. Um. Colin, for for you, I mean, obviously you had, you know, it, 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 you you live in Vancouver, you you have experience with with the downtown east side, but I'm curious from a filmmaker's perspective, what you learned about the community, what you learned about um, the the the, the crisis and, and things like that. Um, yeah, like if, well, as far as from the community itself, like. From it was a big difference for me from like when I was uh, wor working in the neighborhood as obviously like that opened my eyes in a lot of different ways. But a, a huge thing for me is when people started asking to to film different things. And a lot of what I was doing before was more educational and awareness videos about different programs and issues that were going on. And I really got uh, just I felt like I'd won the lottery as far as being able to um meet different people in the neighborhood and learn about kind of the history and that uh really opened my eyes up to just what a amazing community this is that has been through so much you know this we're in the new probably the worst crisis it's ever seen but the the overdose you know records were being broken in the 90s and and the vancouver area of network of drug users you know was formed and and amazing people fought in the community and said you know what we're drug users but this isn't right. And, and uh, it's a, such a strong community that over the years has faced so much and always risen up to have a voice, you know, and, and I think that that's very rare in these sorts of marginalized communities where they're, you know, facing gentrification and all sorts of obstacles that they're destroyed. And, and the downtown east side is a community that's always risen up to say, no, this isn't right. And we deserve to be here. And we're proud of this community. And so it's been a real honor to over the years, just hear all these different incredible stories from different humans and learn so much. And it's been the greatest education for me. And then, so that really helped coming into this crisis and knowing that, you know what, this isn't just about fentanyl. This is about us as a society and the way we look at this issue that is failing this, these people. And so I wanted uh, to make this film as a way of, uh, you know, I guess uh, more being about perspective and it's, than it is about fentanyl and opening people's eyes up to say, hey, this community is fighting like hell and screaming solutions. And because of our discomfort as a society um, with, with, with understanding these services and our lack of education around it, we're allowing people to die. And, and so uh, it's up to us to really force decision makers and government because they're not going to do anything until they know that they're not going to lose elections to really put these in place. So I think that's the goal for me is just, uh, you know, films like this and, and encouraging more people and uh, more voices from the community to get stuff out 
to break, you know, it, it's tough, you know, like all my stuff before uh, to, to leave the harm reduction world or to leave the downtown east side world to get stuff into a wider audience is, is difficult and uh, it's new to the world. So hopefully uh, this has legs, you know, and can start to do that. How has the pandemic impacted your efforts either through you know ac access to, to services whether it's you know access to, to needles or or even access to to, to mental health services um, it, it's uh, as soon as you started to ask that question uh the very first thing that popped into my mind was that we had to cut in half the number of uh tables that we had in our infection site. So we had 12 at one time and it was reduced down to seven, um, which means you have more people waiting outside, people getting frustrated outside. People, when they get frustrated outside will only wait for five or 10 minutes. And then they, they run off somewhere to use in the back alley or in a, behind a dumpster or something like this. Um, that was a huge effect, um, uh, getting people to buy into wearing a mask was very difficult, still is, um, uh, proper washing of hands. Um, you would think that people do that normally. Uh, it's amazing if you sit there and if there was a counter and like, a, like a number counter of how many people truly wash their hands after going to a washroom, it, it, it might not, you might never go out again. <laughs> it's, uh, I, so it's, there, there've been many ways that it has affected us. Um, can you guys think of any other ways? Yeah. Um, Norma, did you want to say anything? I don't mean to, you've been quiet. Oh, oh, go ahead. You're good. Okay, um, I'm going to speak. When I want to speak, I'll speak. <laughs> awesome. Um, if, if I could, you know, it was amazing because, okay, so lang in a sense, language is important here, right? So this um, overdose crisis was called a public health crisis, like officially declared that in 2016. Um, it had been a crisis for a couple of years prior to that, but it was official then. And, um, and so, uh, and then this public health crisis around COVID was declared. And the reason why I bring that up is that we learned stuff from the first crisis, right? Like as a community. And then when, when the second crisis came along, the, the frustration to me was that all these decisions come from on high and then it's people like Dana and Norma that have to implement them. And, and it's, and the decisions are being made by people who don't know what it looks like. Yeah. So, so in, you know, yes, social distancing, all this stuff and, and, and services are cut to, down to half their size, people are still overdosing, right? Yeah. And it was these guys at the, the overdose sites, um, what, some of the language is, is, is called peer work, you know, people with lived experience who are making less than, you know, uh, mental health workers and nurses, and they're saying, my friends are overdosing, so we're going to respond to, like, we were being told not to use some um, oxygen inside, not to respond to overdoses inside oh, the site. Barriers were just like right and left that were put up. 
totally ignoring the first crisis. And it was really led by the uh, the peer group of, of workers to say, my, my friends are more at risk of dying from overdoses than, than of COVID. And so I'm going to respond to these overdoses, whether you support me or not, you know, and, and that, that, that story is overlooked, you know, and, um, and it just speaks to um, like the barriers that are implemented by often by the decision makers who are supposed to be implementing the care, you know. Yeah. You had COVID too. Nor and um, Norma kicked COVID's ass and it nearly uh, scared us. Norma. Scared the hell out of the whole community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I kind of took a little half uh, vacation from OPS and I wanted to come back to work. Then I caught COVID. I was incubated for 12 days. And I, I, I came out of my coma. And then um, after I came back to work, but at first, I just visited and I still had to use oxygen because it attacked my lungs. But so, plus, I have asthma on top of it. So, it's really hard for me to breathe when I came in the hospital. Um, COVID is a, is a really, uh, really wrong disease for us. And um, I was lucky to have come out of it. And, and I believe that the creator. Is meant for me to do what I'm doing today. Like I'm not. It's not my time to leave this earth. And things like around me and people around me. They the people that love me. They support me. And I love them all. They're my family at OPS. And I just want to say to the world, you know, take care of yourselves. You know. Have, love your family, love your friends, and it helps, you know. I give hugs every day at OPS. Very true, very true. <laughs> and confirm. Well, you know, j just on that note, I, a strange thing I noticed kind of earlier on in the pandemic, kind of, you know, summer of 2020, was that a lot of people who weren't taking COVID seriously were using the opioid crisis in the lower mainland as an example of why COVID isn't why COVID isn't as bad as the government say it was because you know there there are many more people dying from overdoses at the time than than they were of of COVID um which to me at least seems maybe a bit disingenuous <laughs> I don't know um but 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 what do you make of, of, of that kind of of, of that kind of argument. It's a rationalization. Um, they're trying to rationalize behavior that they they know is not really uh, correct. I, it, it's hard. Like, I, I don't know the last time BC had something like it. Has BC ever had something like COVID before? Like a, like a swine flu or anything. I don't think BC's really encountered something like this before. So if you haven't traveled to another country or and seen and have lived through a, a very serious epidemic like this, you might tend to think that, oh, this is the government just overinflating something. Uh, I would hear things like they're just trying to control us or they're experimenting with us. Um, I, I mean, there's a lot of people with conspiracy theories. Um, 
I, I do think it's a way of rationalizing your own bad behavior, though. So, yeah, I, um, yeah, sorry, I don't have anything more. <laughs> I will Thanks. say too, like the that that is that is also true, and I maybe that coming from if it's coming from a place of trying to deny COVID, it's, it's obviously just. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to respond to those people, but that, that is, I think, an important note is that, yes, that more people are dying from this crisis than COVID. And what is the the balance of the, the response or the mobilization of a response of like, we're going to drop everything to deal with this? And what, what are we doing? Well, that's, you know, so so that it, it is an important, uh, I think, uh, thing to note anyway, regardless. I'm, I'm curious, you know, because... I think the the opioid crisis wasn't necessarily give at least at the beginning wasn't given the same sort of attention as COVID. It, are we now realizing that there there are a lot of similarities in that they don't just affect one sort of subsect; they can affect everybody. You know whether whether you know whether it's um, a, a, a virus like COVID or or whether or something like with fentanyl. Everybody can get affected, and, and that's why everyone should should fight this it, it 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 seems like a rational extension in terms of that yeah that makes sense that's logical um have i seen examples of it no uh it's i actually i i'd like i think people have been swept away with talking about covid covid and it's been such a a big presence in our lives for the last two years that in some ways people have forgotten about the fentanyl crisis. Um, I think I spoke yesterday about the number of people that are dying in Vancouver every year. It's not dropping. Um, I, and I, I think, and I mean, this is anecdotal, it's my own experience, but I hear about the people that are dying and they're not dying at a site. They're not dying on the street. Most of them are dying alone in their SRO, in their little nine by nine room. Uh, and that tells me that because of COVID, people were kind of pushed inside and you still have your addiction though. So if you managed to get some money, you would go out, get what you needed to get, and then you would do it by yourself as opposed to having somebody present. Um, there is a, actually a, a, an app now for people. Um, you use the app when you need to use, and the app checks in with you to make sure that you're still okay. And if you don't respond back, they phone, they, they phone uh, first responders to come and help you out, uh, which I thought was great. Um, but no, I don't, I, it, um, I think that we've forgotten a little bit about the fentanyl crisis and it's time to start talking about it again. Here's a parallel, just uh, I was just thinking about that maybe may, makes no sense, but like if we look at the response to someone that has COVID, you know, there's there's the vaccines and the boosters and all that. And if um, in, in extreme cases, like Norma, you know, she has to be an induced uh, coma and incubated. And I think like, if you look at the fentanyl crisis, it's like, okay, here's like uh, one, one solution and, and that, that's it. And you're right about that it does affect, um, it can affect anyone. And I think 
the response has to be um, not one solution though. You know, like if kids are getting using party drugs and fentanyl can affect that, and that can, you know, from all walks of life, these kids could be affected by that, then fentanyl testing is a great response and, and, and stuff like that. But for other people and chronic injection drug users, it's like, uh, well, we need this, all these sorts of responses, but you know, we're not going to actually meet those to the scale that we need. And so that I think is the, the big thing is that there's not one way to, to, uh, we, we need, we need so many options here for so many different, different people that, um, that would be nice to, to actually see. You know, I re remember my last house in Vancouver was a big community house and we, we carried two Naloxine, Naloxine kits because there was just a lot of people coming in and out parties sometimes. And I'm wondering, is, is that a solution that could help, you know, distributing those kinds of kits to, you know, either businesses in the area or, you know, a, a designated, you know, block safety person or, or whatever, and teach people how to use those kits? Absolutely. Um, I think it's partially been done in the downtown east side. If I'm, if I, if I understand correctly, so there are some businesses that have the, the naloxone, that black little box, um, with the white cross on it. Uh, those have been handed out to some businesses. Um, but and they have a sticker for the door as well that, yes, that they would have. Yeah. So if somebody's running down, let's say main street and, uh, they're looking for a naloxone kit there'll be a sticker on the door with a white cross that tells you they have something inside. Um, I think that it's, it's a great idea. Um, I hope it continues or gets bigger. And there's a program called Spikes on Bikes that's run by the Portland Hotel Society. Mm -hmm. And do they carry naloxone kits, Ronnie? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, but we could use more of that. Ab absolutely. Uh, for the person that's homeless, and decides that they have to use and has an overdose, somebody, you could easily save somebody's lives, life with a program like that. You know, a little shout out as well, um, like to add on to Dana's is um, school boards have been reluctant to provide uh, right. naloxone kids yeah. and naloxone training to kids. And so I have, I have two daughters, they're 20 and 18 now, but they've had naloxone training since they were 15 um, and I've trained their friends and, and whoever wants, you know, in their group. And, um, and, and I've also spoken in, I've been in some high school groups and the kids are asking for it. They're saying, wow. what do you think? Wow. When can we? Yeah. And, and, and my, my response is, God forbid you're in that situation where you're encountering an overdose, but you want to be prepared if you are, yeah. you know, and, and you don't want to be thinking after the fact, I wish I did, you know, like you never want to be in that situation. Homelessness, I think is, is another angle, you know, um, here in, here in Victoria, it's, it's become um, a bit more of a crisis than it was 15, 20 years ago. Obviously in Vancouver, it's, it's, been debated for years um if there was you know more issues to to look at solving the homeless issues whether it's you know social housing or or you know um part-time jobs and, and and getting them off the street would that in how how would that impact 
overdoses and, and the number of people that use? They always go down, usually. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of put this out to Colin. Colin, is it correct that they've done studies about the correlation between uh, homelessness versus having a job and a place to live? Um, like they're correlated almost? Is that correct, Colin? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure, but uh, I think it makes makes sense. Yeah, like like I think uh, uh, like it's it's complicated stuff, right? And 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 it's like uh, we we uh, I think just using like the downtown east side as an example, it feels like it's constant catch up and it's constant constant efforts, um, uh, but not meeting the the need. And this is uh, you know gentrification is. Continue, continues to grow the downtown east side community continues to shrink and you see more and more people squished into a small space which isn't always just homelessness a lot of that is just because people live in small sros and where that's their public space right as well so i think it's it's uh yeah like there's one recent study i looked at is just in the comparison of like vancouver to cities like austria and i think the other city was uh uh, Singapore and to the amount of public housing that is being built is it's shameful, you know, so um, to say that Vancouver is doing enough is 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 like we got a long way to go. And <laughs> it's probably similar in BC in general. Right. But yes, like th th this is all interconnected as far as like if, if people are allowed to have a, a safe place to, to live in housing and um, jobs like ops, you know, people um, have often spoken at overdose prevention society about just how much that's helped not only um not having to do crime or hustle to 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 find money for drugs but actually being able to contribute to the society affects um their mental health and well-being on so many different levels right like uh and dana and norma obviously can speak about that way better than me but um you know active drug users just because someone is actually using drugs doesn't mean that they can't contribute obviously and in better ways than most of us actually can uh to their communities uh, and should be paid for it what where and why does the stigma still exist you know because we've you know alcohol has been legal for 100 years now marijuana has been legal for five or six i think the stigma around those has for the most part largely gone away i mean there, there, there's still some in ways but there's there's still this big stigma around opioids and, and and fentanyl and a lot of these types of drugs. Where where does that arise from? Do you think? Um, Colin and I I think we're speaking about this over breakfast this morning, and I've spoken about it over the past week. I think um, I I personally believe it starts when we're children. Uh, I think that uh, hate or anger is passed down from parents to child. It, it doesn't have to be um, willful. It can be subconscious, as in, you know, watching daddy swear at this person or, uh, you know, uh, or, or ignore another person um, or say bad things when you walk down the sidewalk and you see somebody on the ground and daddy says, uh, you know, oh, those damn homeless, something like that. So. I believe the stigma, I believe the um, almost anger or hate starts when we're really young. So it's critical to get to children 
like in our education system and start from a young age, helping them understand that uh, people that are struggling on the downtown east side are not bad people. They're not defective. Um, they've got an illness. Um, there's treatment that's difficult to get, but it, it's possible to treat people. It's just something we still need to work on. And it is something that we can fix. If you're taught a full diet of that growing up, I think you're a completely different adult. You know, on that note, I, I it's funny. Whenever I watch TV, I always see there's this really bad drug ad. It's called uh, Drug Free Kids. It's for Drug Free Kids Canada. And just mm -hmm. the, the dialogue is terrible. It's just like, <laughs> I wasn't drug free as a kid. But, you know, can I admit that? And Anyway. Um, but I'm very aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> is... Well. I just want to, sorry, before you ask anyone, I just want to also add in there, there's lots of amazing literature out there. One good book's like Chasing the Screen by Johan Hari that goes into the history of the war on drugs. I've, I've interviewed yeah. Johan about that very book. There you go, yeah. yeah. So yeah. so I think if you look at uh, how these laws were created, it's important for yeah. for that to get out to the public and, uh, you yeah. know, how these... Uh, the, and Ronnie can probably actually speak to this better than me, but like the, you know, how, how the, the roles that, that narcotics play in people's lives uh, hasn't been stigmatized to the extent it is for many years. And, and there's useful reasons for these things in, pe in people's lives to address trauma and different different needs. But there's been a long campaign and a long uh, uh, ingrained, entrenched kind of way of looking at this that I think we, that most of society, sadly, has just you know, it's just part of our lives. The way we look at it is ah, that this is bad, but it, um, it's a gross history of, of how these have been entered our kind of, you know, our minds and, and the way we look at this. I, I think, um, you know, on that note, I, is, is part of the problem in, in education is that with ads like these, we're telling kids no, no, no. But the problem is when you tell kids no, 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 they're going to do it because they want to rebel because that's what kids do. And so rather than saying, don't do this ever, you know, like, do we need, do we need to take the approach of like, cause with alcohol now we're seeing like, well, this is what happens if you do take it, or this is what happens with marijuana. If, if you do take it, do we need to start saying, you know, Hey kids, this is what, you know, these are the, this is what happens when you take opioids. And we're not saying no, we're just saying be aware. I myself, like um, working at the outside 58 East Hastings, they had children coming down, like cut, like up north, like kind of scared straight, scared straight, straight. And I've talked to these young, like they've had native native kids coming back from like coming downtown east side from up north. And I would talk to them and tell them, you know, this is a safe site. And, you know, I'm ex heron I've been clean for 27 years, but you don't want to be in this situation. You gotta have your education. You don't want to be down here. It's, it's you know, you don't want to be like this, you know? It's important for, the young generation to know what's happening in the world and that you shouldn't come down to any city, whatever, and, you know, get into the hard drugs. And it's important for the whole world to know that the young generation needs to know this. Yeah. 
Ronnie, you were going to say something. Well, I like, I mean, this is pretty fresh for me because of the age of my daughters, right? And, um, and in some way, I was determined not to raise them in a prohibitionary mindset, which was how I grew up. Like, you know, the 80s was, you know, that plus I grew up in a religious environment. So I, I was like, I, I don't, I don't think that served me and others well. And then we get into this crisis and I'm like, don't do pills and powders. Um, and, uh, you know, then I'm, I'm afraid, right? Like for their well-being. But, but I've also raised them in the same community. So they've then, and, and they've known, you know, about, you know, what I do for a living. And, um, and, and so they haven't been sheltered from that. They're sort of in their, their own way. They're quite streetwise. And, um, and, and in conversations about illicit, like specifically illicit substance use, because alcohol is in, alcohol is a big, you know, it's probably more of a concern for me, um, uh, you know, for young women. Um, but uh, we've been able to establish a conversation about it. And for me, it's mostly been around time, like age, like, like in brain development, you kind of go like, hold off it's it's important to hold off because of yes, these reasons so much yeah um i've also said if you're going to this is what it's safe safety is i've cautioned around alcohol because that's when inhibitions are lowered yeah. and then we if if you do try you know then then uh how, how do how do we talk about it and we do try um you know because uh, plant medicine and psychedelics have been a, an important part of my healing journey and uh, they've been aware to some degree of that. And as they've gotten older, I've, you know, been able to educate them about that and, uh, and to talk to them about safety in those, in that specific area. And, um, um, and so what we've been able, and I really hope they don't mind me saying this, but, but we, we're a, we have language that we can share and it's not about, it, it's about, it's, it's not about, I hope dad doesn't catch me. It's more about, I wonder what dad will say. I wonder what dad knows. I wonder what dad's experience is. Yeah. And so somehow I've fallen backwards into this, this experience with my, my kids. I can't say that's a universal way of doing things, but it is, I, I feel like they're safer because they can talk about it and they can see me as a, a resource, you know? I, I've had daydreams about what might help, let's say, high school students um, make a choice that's best for them. Um, when you're young, you, all these choices come up that you have to make, and you're often influenced by what your friends are doing or, or by somebody that you respect. If they see somebody <laughs> that they like or respect uh, drinking or smoking, they might try that. They might try cannabis that way. I think that some people, even especially young people, including myself, uh, when something new was presented to them, like an opiate, yeah, you said, sure, you're, first of all, you're young, you're invincible. And that choice doesn't seem, it, it, it's, it's not a, there's not a lot of negative consequences. Sure, you see on TV and movies and stuff like that, that, you know, so-and-so uh, uh, tried heroin and now their life is ruined. 
but you think that's just Hollywood, you know, making something out to be horrible for effect on a movie. Um, I've heard of this scared straight programs in the United States where uh, convicts or drug addicts come to speak to students where they learn. I think it would be different if you could take small groups, let's say three or four kids with, uh, with an instructor or with a guide. And if you could walk through the downtown east side during the day, um, even just through the alleys, so that you could, uh, it's very visceral. We have a place in the downtown east side called Piss Alley. And it's because everybody pisses there. And the smell is overwhelming. And there's no sign, but you know it's pissing. <laughs> you see somebody fixing a shot on on the side of a, a dumpster in the middle of Piss Alley. It's enough to make you throw up. And I think that bringing kids in, let's say, a small group like that to visually see what it's actually like might help them make a much different choice if it's ever presented to them in the future. I, I liked what you're saying too, just about honesty. And I think, uh, you know, there's, as Ronnie was saying that like with, when, you know, there's obviously, you don't need to dump this on a four-year-old, but like, I think the more honest we can be, the, the better. And, and some drugs are going to feel good there's nothing wrong with telling people that but then this is also the uh, another side of it and um yeah i don't know i think honesty is good i think when i you know was told same thing growing up that this was horrible and then smoke pot was like it just instilled my already distrust of society and and the you know people that were trying to tell me the way to live and so that doesn't work and i think like if you look at um I think like the Nancy Reagan's just say no is like literally like shelved as an example of, you know, uh, of one of the worst campaigns and failed campaigns in history. And that's, that's like reality of, of it. So that, those things don't work. And, and I think honesty is, is uh, sometimes not easy, but there's, you can't go wrong with it. You know? Uh, I wanted to ask about the sort of graffiti wall behind, is it, I guess it's behind one of your locations, and how sort of, I think, I was it, uh, I forget his name, who was up there, um, but how Wiley e. Coyote kind of almost became a mascot for, for, for you. Well, um, that, that was Trey, and he, uh, he, he was on it, that was like a series of, uh, uh, it's, is it, Looney Tunes, not Disney, I think, of yeah. characters he was doing that, you know, that, um, yeah, he had, he had a few of them, and, and it was a beautiful thing going on in the community about, and there's another um, community member named Smokey Devil that uh, during this crisis, it was uh, when, you know, community members themselves were the ones rising up to, to meet it in all these different ways, that was a really valuable a way to get messages out there and people really took note of what Smokey was saying about you know when fentanyl was hitting the streets where to get narcan and all these kind of ways when when known community members were passing away doing portraits and it was a 
you know, a beautiful way of, and it's, you know, known as this around the world as a way of, of communication in marginalized communities. And, and uh, uh, they, 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 there's a group of them that, that does this in the downtown east side. And I, I really think it's beautiful. And also, you know, as you saw from that wall, the number of names is, is really endless and ongoing. And that's important to note that this is a movie that started four years ago. And the and uh, it's very, you know, these these guys on, on here are still in it. You know, it's not uh, any easier and not any less people dying. Yeah. Um, for all of you, what was the your 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 favorite or the the the, the best thing about um, appearing in or 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 being involved? I can actually, Colin, I, Colin and I spoke about this also this morning over breakfast. Mm -hmm. um, I, it's probably the hardest, I don't know, to me it was a, one of the harder scenes in the movie. And it's, it's, it's about the middle of the movie and it's a, it's a dark scene, it's a dark room. And there's one booth lit up and uh, I, I walk over to the booth and I'm whistling away and uh, I prepare an injection. And because my arms are worn out, I have to use a vein in the side of my neck. And uh, there was a lot of symbolism in that scene for me about uh, hiding. Like um, if you're in the middle class, you can't admit to having a problem because people become very afraid and you can it very easily be shunned. And I, and I was on multiple times. Uh, so it, it really represents the alone feeling that I had and the lack of support that I had at that, like earlier in my life. And Colin, I just, he really encapsulated that in that scene. And I, I mean, it almost sounds a little vain that yes, the scene that I was in was fantastic. And it, it's not that at all. It's just, I just like how well the symbolism represented a big kind of dark part of my life. And that that's what stood out for me a lot. I'm that's a little overwhelmed by Dana's account. Um, that's that's really beautifully said. Um, um, I could use a minute. Okay. Mm -hmm. I myself, uh, as being an ex heroin addict. And I used to shoot up cocaine and heroin. I used to go in back alleys. I used to hide from everybody. And stay in my room and shoot up by myself. Uh, SRO building. Um, and, you know, I was scared for myself, but I was, I didn't want nobody to see what kind of uh, uh, addict I was. And, um, uh, like I felt ashamed. 
I was scared, but I had an addiction. And yeah, the, um, like when I started getting out of the heroin, you know, like I went in the methadone program and, but it was scary for me because I, I seen people I knew that were still using they're asking me, hey, Norma, you want to do a shot? I said, I don't use no more. I said, you know, can I help you anyway? And he said, no, I just want to get high with you. But I can't. I said, I, I want to move on with my life. It's because I ran out of uh, veins in my arms. I used to jump to my neck. I'm not proud of it. But I'm, I'm proud that I'm speaking to the world now. You know, saying, you know, we're not perfect human beings. And, you know, I'm just trying to cope with my life now and try to move on better things from that. I'm still have my addictions too. I drink alcohol every day. I smoke crack cocaine. Um, I smoke weed. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's important that people know about things like this that we're not all uh, perfect human beings. Alan, did you have a favorite scene? Like in the movie? Well, was... I, was, I was thinking about, uh, there's, there's lots for, for like of just the scenes and, and I, I was just thinking like, um, you know, we just finished this and it, and it uh, premiered just uh, like a few days ago in Vancouver. And I think like of that's when it, it seemed like such a slog to, to get this all um, finished and everything. And, and a lot of like really kind of reflection has had just, there's just been not time for it. It's just been a lot of like worrying about how to actually do this justice. And I don't think you can capture really actually the reality you know to to the extent that it's just uh, not possible but i think uh um it was like and it's a big worry like for me it was like really important uh, how this community um felt about it and so it was really special to premiere it in the downtown east side at, at and there and have people there and it just uh i think it was it's it it really uh uh words just can't express like the uh, being able to to see this, you know, on the big screen with with the community that helped make it and is still going through this, and and at least have um, audiences there witnessing that and uh, being able to see, you know, a small shred of what the magic that um, and courage and bravery and and horrible horrific tragedy that is happening. And, and but yeah, mostly just just these guys and you know seeing them there is is words can't you know express that how much that means to me. Thanks, yeah. Um. I, okay, so I've I started working like in Supervised in Insight, which was the only site on the continent for years, and one of two outside of Europe. Um, up until this site opened in 2000, the, where Dana and Norma worked. That, that opened in 2017. I started at Insight in 2009. 
Sorry. Yeah, you're right. I, you're right. Sorry, Norma. I start. I I shifted over there in 2017. You're right. And uh, um, and I that was prior to like black market fentanyl surfacing when I started, and I I sort of was pedal down for almost eight years working nights, and then when my my work week was done i was a full-on dad for three days and i was pedal down for a long time so it's it's sorry to be emotional but it's it's um there was a lot of loss and grief and advocacy and frustration and anger and so it is nice to have people go, hey, you did good. You know, I come at it differently. I don't have lived experience like Dana and Norma can speak to. Um, and, you know, I just showed up as best I could. And, and to have that acknowledged means a lot. Go Narcan Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know if uh, Norma or Dana can know, but did, where, or Ronnie, where did that name start like where did that you know well you know okay there's there's a mural in the film that like of me that this this street artist smoky devil uh painted and um i he he painted that as a you know because he was grateful to me for intervening in an overdose years prior with him and he wanted to do a tribute to me because he always remembered that and uh, at that time, I told, I was, he and I were joking around and I told him about this other incident where I was on my way to work one night and I did two overdoses. And as I was running from one to the other, um, this kid just out of the blue go said, there goes the Narcan Jesus. And then when I, the second one was stabilized, I'm like, did you call me Narcan Jesus? I'm like, that's kind of funny, you know? And so I told Smokey that and he added like he titled his mural narcan jesus right so so it started from there you know kind of an organic little nickname i'm so glad you asked that yeah <laughs> ronnie does this mean that maybe there's a, a memoir in your future stories of narcan oh. jesus yeah yeah oh. gather around kids you know oh, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> awesome wouldn't wouldn't we all like to read that yes right I, i'll buy it I'll yeah. pre-order. <laughs> yeah, pre-order pre pre-order right now, and it'll come out in two years, right? Invest in some post-it notes right now and collect <laughs> my thoughts. Yeah, um, I know it, it premiered a few days ago, and you um, you're you know sort of touring with it a little bit. What what's the response been like? Two thumbs, thumbs up. Fantastic, my Cisco and Ebert are yeah. both two <laughs> thumbs up. We rock. <laughs> I, I I have not heard a single bad comment about the movie, and that and that's purely anecdotal. Um, I I mean, and I'm not sure that you know. I spent a lot of time uh, in my past lives. I spent about 15 years doing stage work, uh, theater stage work, and. Uh, you know, often people were very kind to your face and they wouldn't tell you what they really thought on occasion. Um, I'm not even getting any kind of vibration that people are saying one thing and really meaning another. 
everybody's just been blown away because it 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 tears open the curtains on something that has been alluded to in the past um, through media, but I've not seen as real a depiction of of what actually happens in the world of drug addiction as Colin's film. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, 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 Colin, as, as, as the director, how do you feel about the uh, response that it's gotten? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been, uh, but like, like I said, it's been just these three screenings so far. So it's uh, been really encouraging. And like, I was really worried about mainly the the Vancouver one there and, and the community and stuff and so it just meant everything to and there was a cool the coolest part was like because there's lots of new staff at ops um sadly because lots of staff have passed away and, and uh and also there's just turnover but um it was really cool for me to come come to ops the next day and it was a lot of the new staff that had gone to the screening and say you know uh, that was amazing and thank you for really capturing what it's like so that that was really cool i thought is that you know that it's um it still still is uh um reflecting what they're going through there and they they felt that and felt uh you know uh, a lot of people in the film have passed away and, and how much it meant to see them. And uh, one person said it was great to see Lisa uh, alive, you know, and, and it was just so many amazing comments of of this. And uh, that, that really uh, is just such a, it's a relief on one hand and just like gives me hope that, okay, maybe, maybe we did it. Maybe now like the big test is how, how will the world, because, you know, we, live this every day in the downtown east side this is our language but how is that going to translate outside of that is is now like the big question and it's uh it's going to get out there like it's going to be in pbs for a huge audience in america next year so uh i hope you know the hope is that uh it's the same response continues you know paul tell me about the review you told me about yesterday I asked you how the newspapers, uh, there was one guy that loved it, wasn't there? Right, yeah, so uh, Ryan Jesperson uh, had said, uh, his one quote was that this isn't the most powerful movie that uh, you'll see this year. This is one of the most powerful movies ever, which was amazing, uh, I thought, to comment. And uh, I think he's a, you know, it's a well-known uh, radio podcast in Canada. Yeah, it just is uh, mind-boggling to to hear that, and uh, and I think uh, yeah, it's 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 great. There's definitely going to be I think people familiar with this work are going to. I, I my hope is that are going to be like okay, finally something that is able to really capture this, and I hope that people are, are opposed to this will be like okay, yeah. Oh, I got to say this one. There was another uh, comment that I heard of. There was an older lady that was a part of like the film festival, maybe even a filmmaker that. Had came come to the first screening, which was in the downtown east side, and she had uh, asked for a cab ride after because she didn't feel safe in the community. And then after oh, yeah. the movie, after the movie, she said, "I don't need a cab. I've changed my perspective." And so that was wow. really really cool uh, wow. comment as well. But yeah, I just I hope people other audiences unfamiliar with it are just open to hey, if we can just shift it even a little bit of that we know just how much we don't know and, and need to relook.
add things, and that would be amazing. We're in in Edmonton as this is being recorded, and so we're outside of you know our family and friends. <laughs> enemy lines. Pardon me. Find enemy lines. Well, yeah. So not 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 Edmonton. They've been so lovely. My goodness. Um, yes, they have. The government. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying, but uh, um, it, it's so great to be so warmly received by by people who are strangers to me. I think they all know Colin, but uh, I, I'm kidding. But um, but yeah, it was just really um, yeah that that was a, a bit of a question mark, right? Is would it be you know outside of our community? What what's the perception? And it's just been really warm and really wonderful. Yeah. Well, yes. the The film is "Love in the Time of Fentanyl," uh, and then you've had three screenings. And Colin, I understand it's just it's kind of going to be making its way um, around the country through through different festivals. I know it's going to. When does it come out on PBS? Twenty twenty three. So we're going to do uh, a big a festival run as we can and try and get as many places. And then uh, and then once it's broadcasted. Um, that kind of festival life ends and then it's about uh, you know however that works with different all the different kind of uh, ways to see it and it should be available in some form after that but uh, but yeah yeah no, there's I... also for anyone uh, I don't know when this is gonna be released is this uh, what, so, it's probably so, doing the plug for tonight uh, because we got a third screening tonight but okay yeah it, it, I mean it, it will be released soon probably with you know, in the next few days to a week, I would yeah. say. Um, so, you know. Well, if you can time travel come back and see <laughs> that we just got an afternoon screening tonight. Yeah. I know. I've, uh, I've, 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 I've done the festival circuit, so I, I sort of know yeah. how how taxing it can be, you know. Um, yeah. But I, I do think um, Ronnie Jesperson was right. It's a very, very powerful film. Um, very eye-opening very um jarring but all you know uh, uh, you know he, um human as well you know i think it's i think it's just a very human film which i think is um what has uh maybe uh, attracted um so many people to it uh call and ask you ronnie grig dana mckinnis uh no yes Alan thank Gore. you thanks so much for uh for joining me today this was yeah. Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Was my conversation with Colin Askey, Dana McPhee, Norma Valancourt, and Ronnie Grigg about the documentary Love in the Time of Fentanyl. Uh, it recently premiered at the DOXA Justice Forum special presentation on May the 10th uh, and is well played at Northwest Fest in Edmonton on May the 13th. It will have some other dates this summer and also look for it uh, broadcast on public television.
this summer. I encourage everyone to see it when they can. That does it for me this week. Next week, I'll be speaking with former Major League umpire Dale Scott on his memoir, The Umpire is Out. Until then, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.